Biting right now in Galatians. And if you are somewhat new to the Christian faith, or even old, you've probably seen this pattern, and it's an old one. It's something that happens to us over and over again in life. Is Jesus comes into our life, he transforms us, he changes us, we have these astounding discoveries, we're becoming new people, and we want to put aside all of the old, and we start looking for a system or a person who we can turn to who will kind of protect us from all of the dark impulses of our lives. We'll start to look for rules, we'll start to look for systems, and sometimes as we do that, we start to become overcome by another system of slavery. We might have said the previous one was sin, but then it becomes a system of legalism, and it's just as attracting, just as entangling. Well, there was a series of churches that Paul wrote a letter to called the Book of Galatians, and the short story is that in Paul's first missionary journey, he traveled into the cities of Lystra, Iconium, and Dur. They're in a province called Galatia. If you read in the book of Acts, it'd be Acts 13, 14. He started churches there, and they were these churches that were initially coming out of Jewish synagogues, and then they started incorporating Gentiles in. And the churches were growing, and Paul had appointed some elders and leaders of the church. But they were really struggling with an issue, because they had two distinct cultures, in fact, two distinct religious heritages in their midst. And the oldest one that was from people of faith in Yahweh God was the Jewish one. So as Paul stepping aside from these churches... Jewish Christian leaders start moving up and coming into Galatia, and they start telling the churches, you don't just need your freedom in Christ. you got to get your life right. And we've got all of this Old Testament law, and if you take this Old Testament law, then you're going to be right with God. Looking for some type of system that would protect them. Now, what we enter into, and there's a little bit of kind of historical guesswork here, but it looks like there's about a 20 to 30 year period of time where the church is wrestling with this. What do we do with Old Testament law? And Galatians is one of the places where Paul writes and tries to help us sort through it. And uh, frankly, if you read through Galatians in a translation of the Bible that's not trying to use a lot of religious language, it sounds like an ordinary email. It has some language in it that you typically don't say at church. I don't think I'm going to say it today. A week ago I said one of the words. But he's going to talk where he actually insults people in a certain way, where he talks about being really crass. And it's one of these moments, too, that I say this. When you see a church leader who's a good one get really mad, pay attention. There's something that's made him go, hmm, this can't go on any longer. That's Galatians. Now, today, the big question we're going to talk about today is what is the purpose of Old Testament law? And I think even in, let's see, today is February 16th, if I remember right. I can get my head, February 16th. Probably really good time here to talk about Old Testament law. What's the purpose of it? A couple of things that I bet are happening amongst a portion of you. 
We're about six weeks into New Year's resolutions right now. I usually will encourage people, yeah, when you come to New Year's, assess the past, see what you can do better. Last week our elders made a presentation. This is our budget somewhat. We were looking at the past, projecting the future, trying to guide this church through it. It's, it's that process. What went on in the past? Where are we going? A lot of us probably made a resolution that we were going to try to spend more time in the Bible. Maybe we were going to try to read the Bible every day. If you're on a daily Bible reading plan, odds are right now you've hit the hardest portion of it. You're in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you're getting overwhelmed with lists, tabernacle requirements, all the food you can eat, who you can marry, who you can't marry. It starts to get overwhelming and sometimes you start to skim over it or you say, oh, let me pick this up again in April. Another thing that's happening, oh, and I'll say this, but for some of you, a light bulb is going on as you're going through it. You're actually going to go, hmm. And maybe it's the really clever ones out there will go, but you know, if you know history, this actually kind of makes sense. And if you know culture, and then you say, okay, and there's some things that are good about this Old Testament law. Um, some of us are really concerned about the coronavirus. And if you read through Old Testament law, you go, okay, religious leaders are supposed to make sure infection doesn't spread. We might be saying, yeah, wouldn't it be great if we had more thorough ways of doing that? Some of us have made resolutions about being healthy, and we start to realize, hey, some of these dietary things are pretty good sound. I can't imagine anybody's life is as chaotic as Old Testament Israel. But if it is, you'd almost like to say, okay, this is who you can marry, and this is who you can't marry. We want some boundaries. And we start to think, you know, society would be better if we had a greater sense of God, His holiness, His presence. And a few of us will be tempted as we come to church to start to craft really thick policy manuals, really long to-do lists, complicated accountability structures. And that's where Galatians is going to start to wrestle with us because we're in a certain way fascinated by this stuff. Some even pragmatic New Year's resolutions. I'll tell a story my brother told me. Because in all practicality, a lot of us are not doing very well with keeping our resolution. My younger brother owns a gym in Austin, Minnesota. And a couple years ago, he let me know a secret. Some of you are smiling. I wonder if you know my brother. That's the Midwest. We kind of bump into one another. But... Uh, my brother told me, you know what, I, I try to do this in January. I mean, we do these New Year's resolutions things. We're trying to get people to get gym memberships. But this is how we're playing the game. We're assuming that most of them are going to sign up. We'll see them about two weeks, and then they're going to disappear. So we're going to manage our gym, assuming we're losing the bulk of them, but we're going to try to get tied into their bank accounts so they keep sending us money over. The general rule of thumb for New Year's resolutions is you can tweak what you're already doing, but if you try to do something you have not been doing for years upon years, and on January 1st you're going to start, it's probably not going to work out very well. If you're good at keeping your house tidy and you're going to have a few better organizations in the New Year, it'll probably be that way. If your house looks like my office, it's probably not going to get that much better in on the first. We wrestle with this. 
We have human limitations of time, energy, and reserves. And when we push ourselves hard and say, I really want to turn this corner, I'm going to create accountability structures. I'm going to create systems. Most of the time, we can't meet our own expectations. There's a lot of our own failure. Today, we're going to look at one of these texts where I think those of us that are hungry will say, yeah, there's a portion of me that really hungers for this, that wants to have systems that will get my life ordered. But every time I create one, all it does is exposes my own failures. I'm going to read from Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 26. I'm going to read from Holman's Christian Standard Bible. Can you stand with me? I'll read it, and then I'll kind of give you my thoughts on it. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. The purpose was the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so they could receive the promised spirit through faith. Brothers, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to even a human covenant that has been ratified. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seats, as though referring to many, but referring to one. And to your seat, who is Christ. And I say this, the law which came 430 years later does not revoke a covenant that was previously ratified by God and cannot cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is from the law, it is no longer from the promise, but God granted it to Abraham through the promise. Why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now a mediator is not just for one person, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would certainly be by the law. But the scripture has imprisoned everything under sin's power, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined into the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that he would be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Please be seated. Okay, can I give you a summary of where this is going? Paul starts telling us all who rely on the works of law are under a curse. In fact, the only thing that law keeping will get us is to be under a curse. And we know this by our own experience. When we craft our long to do list, when we submit to a sense of complicated religious rules, all that happens is we fail. Over and over again, no one can keep all the expectations of rule keeping, and it's part of the reason why when some of you get to Numbers and Deuteronomy, 
we kind of check out. It's just too much. It's like drinking out of a fire hose. Paul quotes the, a phrase here and says from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous will live by faith. He uses that phrase also in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And those of us that have grown up in Christian traditions, and probably those that have come out of Protestant traditions, we're used to this phrase, the righteous will live by faith. It's one of these defining words that is over and over again part of our Christian heritage, part of our understanding of what it means to say, I just want to put aside all of the religious hang-ups, the, the systems, the rule-keeping. I just want to live by faith. I just want to be practical. I uh, also want to mention, and we may look at this in the fall, if you will take some time and read the book of Habakkuk, which is where this phrase comes from, Habakkuk wasn't arguing against all of the systems of Christianity that Martin Luther was arguing against. Habakkuk was in the nation of Judah as the northern kingdom had fallen to Assyria and Babylon was rising inside. And Habakkuk seems to have been a simple man who God was speaking to and Habakkuk knew the delation that he called home was going to fall to. And it was going to fall to, to a brutal kingdom called Babylon. And he was wrestling with what this was supposed to mean. This text that we're hearing is originally talking about what happens when life is completely unraveling. And everything that we understand is falling apart and Habakkuk's day wasn't that different from ours because people sometimes would use kings and political systems as idols. And he proclaims by the power of the Spirit the righteous will live by faith. No matter what is happening around us, we will live by faith. Paul speaks and uses that phrase to talk about as we're wrestling with rule-keeping. This is how we live. We live by faith. For Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the Old Testament law. How does that happen? Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, which says, Cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. Now, this is morbid. This is harsh. <coughs> the days that this was written to, the system of justice was, if you did some type of crime that was perceived as horrendous, your life was taken. The Jews would typically execute people by stoning. The Romans would execute them by crucifixion. In more recent time of our humanity, it would be hanging. And for the most despicable of criminals, the Jews would not kill them by hanging, but they would put them on their body on the tree. And it was to humiliate them. It was to humiliate their necks. And it was to send this awful message that the weight of this type of crime is horrible. You should be afraid to do these type of things. Paul, in referring to this, talks about Jesus, the Son of God, fully God, all of his holiness, his love, his mercy, all perfection, not a bit of sin in him, 
takes upon himself the curse of the Old Testament law. His body is broken, is destroyed, is beaten, is killed, and is done in a public way, hanging upon a cross, hanging upon a tree. He took away the way to rule keeping. He removed that curse from us. And I want us to profoundly wrestle with that. That if we're wrestling with, okay, I'm just looking for one new set of rules, thinking I can get it right just one time, and then realizing, no, I can't get it right. Jesus himself takes the curse upon us. The point being that Abraham's blessing will come to the Gentiles. The purpose of Jesus taking that curse and so the blessings of Abraham would come to the Gentiles, those, well, I think that's most of us here, who don't have Jewish heritage. If we trace our lineage back, we will find our lineage as a pagan people somewhere who God didn't speak to on that. God wanted to bring all of us, all humanity, all peoples, to saving knowledge of Jesus, and it, it's a him, and it took place through the horrible hanging of Jesus, the Son of God, upon the cross. We have received that Abraham blessing. It's an intimate friend of God. And we, too, receive that intimacy as the promised Holy Spirit lives in us. And when the Spirit lives in us, it gives us a new power, a new ability not to be constrained by law-keeping, but things just spring from us that are good. And when darkness is springing from our life, the Spirit convicts us and changes us, and we spend... Frankly, most of our life wrestling with this, but the Spirit is what brings good. It's not law-keeping. Law and we celebrate joy. One of the things I want you to notice also is how Paul shifts how he refers to the Galatians in this text that I read. Last week, I admit, I knew we've got food and we've got little kids. I've got to keep the sermon short. I wanted to use something where we at least see the main point of, of the thing, I guess. I hope I'm making sense. I want to see it make sense of complicated religious things that are hard to get our brains around in Galatians, but kids can get it. And I read from Holman's, which I like to read from, and I thought, i got to find a translation that will catch your kids. And I read through the kids said, and I said, now there's going to be a word in this translation that some of your families, your mom or dad, would not want you to use this word to describe a sibling. I think the kids were paying attention. I said, what's the word? And one young man raised his hand and said, idiot. My mom wouldn't want me to call my siblings idiots. But that's how Paul referred to the Galatian church when they were going back and trying to get into the systems of law. A few verses later, what I just read is instead of calling this church idiots or foolish or stupid, like some translations, he calls them brothers. The message, Eugene Peterson says, they're friends. And it, this is good for my spirits even to realize this. And if I could say this, this is what church is like. There's times where there's going to be issues that we're going to argue some about. Our tensions may get high. And there might be a godly old man that will use some tough language to speak to us. But the godly in our midst love us and see us as family and friends. And I don't want you to miss this one little intimacy of this text. Paul, when he's writing tough stuff, these are brothers. These is family. These are friends. These are people he loves. And he's saying, when you 
take on Jesus, and the Spirit lives in your life, and you have joy, this is the type of intimacy that we have. Brothers. There's an illustration of covenants here, some illustrations of it. One he talks about when a covenant is made, it can't be set aside. It's made for all time. I think I'm in, I didn't plan to put this in. This is just coming to me. We live in a society that in some ways doesn't understand covenants very well. And I'm trying to think quickly, probably the thing that most of us recognize is the covenant between husband and wife. That's supposed to be a lifelong covenant. There's cultures around the world, and some of them end up here in America now, where men can make covenants between one another, and it says this, we're going to make a covenant that will last between our families until the Lord returns. We were once just neighbors, and then we become family, and now we will be family forever. I think we underestimate covenants here. I won't go very deep in that. But Paul is telling them, there was a promise that was made to Abraham, a covenant that was spoken to him and to his seed, which Paul interprets by the power of the Holy Spirit to be that singular seed is Christ. And that covenant was how, through Abraham's faith, the Gentiles, all nations, all people would be blessed. And then 400, roughly 430 years later, Israel is a nation they are more like an extended family, a big one, living as slaves in Egypt, and they get called out. We come to the Exodus, which if we're reading through the Bible, we probably like Exodus chapter 1 to about Exodus chapter 22-ish, and then we start to get lost in the law. But that came about 430 years later. And Paul makes the point that all of that law didn't take away that original promise, that original covenant, because covenants are a big deal. Well, what's the purpose of this law, the big why question? The law came because our human nature was unable to live up to the desires of the covenant. We needed guidelines for law. We couldn't live up to it. And... Uh, yeah, I'm going to get a little bit off track here, but I think I want to say this. this um, one of the things that I've had a privilege of doing is I'm old enough now where I've been around a lot of funerals. And a lot of times when you're around a funeral, people will say, these are the most important things I learned. And one of the things that I have found really endearing and it's hard, but when you watch an older couple where one has passed and the other one is explaining the life and trying to say what mattered, I have noticed in my 53 years how frequently the one who the most important thing about our marriage was that we forgave one another. And could acknowledge that, you know, we made life on covenant. We said, until death do us part, we did that. But frankly, the old man and old woman will say, boy, I knew I was tough to live with. 
And this is the thing about covenants. They expose our inability to keep the ideals of the covenant. So the law is given because we can't make it. We can't stay up to those ideals. Is it contradictory to God's purposes? Absolutely not. And there's a couple of illustrations about what the law does. One illustration says it basically it functions like a prison. And, you know, I hate to say this. You know, I, I actually am one of those guys who likes the Old Testament. If you look at my Facebook profile where years ago when it started, you were supposed to write, what's your favorite books? I actually wrote the Pentateuch. That's me. But it functions like a prison. Because what it does is it keeps sin under control until faith in Jesus arrived in the history of humanity. It was God recognizing that I want to give them just a promise, but they can't make it. So I've got to give them all of these laws and guidelines until faith in Jesus arrives. Us sinful people need some basic guidelines or we fall into anarchy. That's what the law was doing. Another illustration, it says, and I'm going to use a Greek word, and I probably will mistranslate it, but it says the law functions like a pedagogue. And if you're reading English translations, you'll say, may say things like a schoolmaster or a guardian or a tutor or some of the more trendy will say a babysitter. And I'm not a great Greek scholar. I won't bore you to death with how bad my Greek is and how poor my understanding is. But let me try to give you an illustration of what I think Paul was writing about. In the day that Paul was writing, slavery was practiced. It's a horrific practice. It's a horrific economic exploitation of people, but it was practiced. And like many things of Old Testament law, God's trying to figure out how to refine it, and people are trying to refine it so it's not as horrific as it could be. And one of the habits that some families had is if you had a wealthy family and they had a bunch of kids and they had a slave that was smart and trustworthy, and dad and mom were both pretty busy, they would appoint that slave to be the caretaker of the children. And the slave would watch the child, maybe like a nanny or a babysitter or an au pair, but he would also educate the children, and he would also tutor the children. And ideally, he would try to find you know, a really smart, well-educated slave to do this. And for the kids, you know, you, it's nice to have somebody watching out for you. And you maybe you learn some things, but this pedagogue also had the authority to discipline a child. So, literally, your dad's away, and your mom's doing something, and you misbehave in the pedagogue you know, administers discipline. I spent a couple of hours digging around trying to think, is there anything in the American experience like this? I couldn't find anything. I asked Janet, can you think of anything? She said Mary Poppins. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? Mary Poppins, uh, that's been a long time so much, it, it, it has a, a pleasant feel to it. When Paul's using this phrase, I think he wants people to know, yeah, there's some good that came out of the pedagogue, but for most people reading it, this isn't a pleasant experience. It's about being disciplined by someone who's a slave. And it's about even your family fragmentation not working well. But that's what the law does. As faith comes, this is what we become. 
we become sons of God. Sons of God. We have intimacy with God. We can look to him, and Jesus used the phrase, Abba, Father, we can speak to him in the most intimate terms to him. We have birthrights and inheritance. We have freedom. And the illustration is we've moved from prisoners who are disciplined by a slave to sons in the richest kingdom of the earth. That's what we have. And when we think about what the Galatians are giving up, they've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. They were Jews who were bound by law, or they were Gentiles bound up in idolatry and sin. And all of that's been taken away, and now they're part of the family of God, and they have intimacy with it, and they're willing to go back to a form of slavery. You can see why Paul would use words like idiot, stupid, and foolish to describe them. And then flip it around and give them the mercy of calling them brothers, friends, family, because this is the truest root of who they are. They're children, children of God with all of the blessings of that. I'm going to ask for you to stand. I'm going to read a closing blessing, and I'll be reading this every time that I preach to you. Galatians, tail end of it. May the God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, give you grace and peace. Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God our Father planned, in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen.